Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. And so I believe tonight uh, is the special night that we're going to talk about Christmas. Yes. Yay. Christmas is actually not just a long-standing interest of mine, like the, the origin of Christmas, whether it comes from the mysteries of Mithras or from Saturnalia or somewhere else, which I think we'll talk about, but it's also the origin of Ask a Medievalist in a way, because, um, let me see, December 2019, which seems like it happened about 10 years ago, uh, <laughs> there oh, wow. happened to be, it yeah, did. it did, Yes, a dispute in the Wisconsin state capitol about what to call the tree that was erected there uh, with various decorations. Really? I don't think I knew this part of it. Oh, you didn't? No, I don't think I yeah. knew this part of the origin story. Yeah, so obviously nowadays they have other things that they're arguing about, which is primarily whether or not the Big Ten should go forward with its football season or not, I yes, guess. Right. So they're not, I'm going to say they're not exactly like doing more important stuff, but um, before under Governor Doyle, who was our previous Democratic governor, uh, it was called a holiday tree. And then in part of his plan to bring back that old-time religion to the capital, I guess, Governor Walker renamed it a Christmas tree. And then we recently-ish, I guess, elected Tony Evers, who is a Democrat again, and he renamed it a holiday tree. I think in December of 2019, so they get like school children to do decorations, they hang on it, and I think it was actually a science-themed holiday tree, awesome. which is hilarious yes. on a number of different levels. Um, <laughs> but also... We should celebrate you know, science. Turns out that was very prescient. Yeah. Yes. Science turned out would be come in handy for 2020. Yes. And uh, the, the Evers administration has done a lot for science, I will say, like pushing a scientific agenda of wearing masks and washing your hands and stuff. Yay! Um, <laughs> much to the displeasure of Republicans in the state legislature, but... Right. Um, Who would rather get inexplicable. Sick? Yeah, I guess so. But, anyway, my point of view was that this is the stupidest thing I'd ever heard people argue about, and don't they have actual jobs? And, you know, because, on the one hand... Whatever you call it, it's obviously a Christmas tree, right? Like, it is people that, don't yes. put up evergreens in their house right. to celebrate, you know, the solstice or what other holidays do people <laughs> celebrate? Hanukkah. Festivus, Hanukkah. Hanukkah right. bush. As, Hanukkah as bush. Yes. yes. Um, and, like, I like the lights. Like, they're fine as objects. Mm -hmm. But... 
Um, yeah, Hanukkah and Kwanzaa both have lights, of course. Yeah. But the tree is a Christmas tree. The tree is definitely. But so as I started thinking about it, and this is um, obviously where you came in, it seemed like the idea of putting lights and various pretty objects on a tree is like seems very pagan. Like it seems like building a shrine, sort of. Right. Which, of course, everybody does. Yeah. Not just pagans. Um, also Christians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yes. Um, Christians big on candles on things. Yes. I've been told that people in Germany still sometimes put, like, lit candles on their Christmas trees. Yes, but which... you better make sure those suckers are <laughs> either fake or still alive. Yeah. Because nothing burns like a Christmas tree that's dry. Yes. That, and fire departments, is... like, warn you about that stuff, too. I mean, yeah. it's a freaking... It's a really horrific thing that happens frequently in the country on Christmas or around Christmas. Yeah. So mm -hmm. anyway, on that note, yeah. yes. So you were saying, yes, in, in Germany. Uh, it, yeah, in Germany, apparently there is still some some knowledge about how to do this safely. Yes. Or else there's just like a lot of houses that go up in flames that I'm not, you know, I'm not tracking because I don't read Der Spiegel or something every day. But right. So... The question that arose and that I wound up doing the comic that spawned us uh, is, like, what's with trees? So, yes. <laughs> um, sort of broadly. And I think we decided that, that pagans definitely did worship trees. Um, oh, yeah. But there's a lot going back there. You know, that the trees have been important in Christianity as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, with the Garden of Eden and then myths about the cross Yep. Um, and I, things about like the cross being made from yeah. the wood. I mean, we'll go over all this also yeah. later. So, anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but this was the comic. Yeah. Yeah. So this was the comic and that was, um, what wound up spawning the, the whole show. So here, 25 episodes later. Yes. And 25 for Christmas, which is yes. kind of a coincidence, but yes, I'm, I will have to check the schedule. Like, this will be episode 25, but it will be posted out of order. Because I think... Possibly. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. We'll find out. It's unclear. <laughs> anyway, it's officially the 25th episode that we've recorded. Yes. So... Yes. Uh, whatever order it winds up being posted in... Yes. That is what it is. Yay. So... I think this is, like, a great time to talk about Christmas sort of as a whole, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that gets sort of mixed up around the holiday, right? Like, you have presents. Yes. Um, starting with the most important part of the holiday, I guess. Yes. You the have reason. the giving have of gifts. <laughs> you have trees. You have Jesus's birth. Yes. Um... Which, like, there's some great music associated with that, right? By Handel. Oh, some great, lots of great Christmas carols. Yeah, lots of, oh, lots man. of great music. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see. Christmas pageants. Christmas pageants, yep. Mm -hmm. Which are themselves, like, pretty, like, cool, but also weird. And, of course, like, nativity you know. scenes. Speaking of things that you do or don't put up, like, on your courthouse lawn or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Depending. Um, I want to give kind of a shout out to Chicago, um, Daily Plaza, every year. 
you get all the usual things. So you get, of course, the Christmas tree. You get the menorah. Um, you get the lights for Kwanzaa. Um, and there is also a nativity scene that's sponsored by someone specific. Um, a specific church. I don't ever. I don't quite remember who. I'd have to look at my pictures. And then you also get an atheist installation, <laughs> um, which is sort of fantastic because it's sort of like about light and hope or something, but also has a big A so that you know it's like for atheists. Um, and it says so. I mean, it says like you know. And I sort of love it because you know that truly makes it about as inclusive as you're going to get. Yeah. All of the holidays that are celebrated at this time of year. And then, although definitely still presumably missing a few, I mean. Um, but then also the atheists. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, the slow inclusion of all the holidays plus atheists. Mm -hmm. Which is then everybody. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. And of course, they leave everything up the whole season. So it doesn't really matter necessarily like when... Hanukkah actually is, like, the menorah will be yeah. a little time, you know. Yeah. But anyways. But this could probably take us to sort of, like, Christmas. Why is it in December? <laughs> yes. Right? Um, which is a good place to start, because, of course, this is the big old question. Um, we It is celebrated on the 25th of December, um, which, of course, makes Christmas Eve the 24th, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and makes the Feast of the Circumcision the 1st of January, which is, of course, now New Year's, um, but wasn't always New Year's. New Year's was frequently in March, um, because, of course, the spring, right? That's when you get your new year. Mm -hmm. um, so... Because <laughs> a, a bris traditionally takes place, I don't know, a week after birth? Yep. Which it right? is. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, so it was always the Feast of the Circumcision, it just wasn't always New Year's. Mm -hmm. But eventually that sort of made sense, I guess, for New Year's, you know. Um, there, I mean, there were times when January 1st was New Year's, and then it was in March a lot. It sort of just depended where you were in Europe and also what time you were. Yeah. <laughs> um, those were the major sort of points, I guess. Like January 1st, March 1st, or somewhere in March um, tended to be the major places New Year's happened. Okay. Um, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode, the idea of fertility festivals happening. Of course you get harvest festivals. We talked about this with Halloween in the right. fall. Um, because, and they are frequently connected with fertility because you want to hold that with you through the winter. <laughs> you need mm -hmm. to remember it through the winter. Um, then yes. of course in the spring you get fertility festivals again because obviously, right? Everything's come back right. to life. Um, you need to get ready for a good, bounteous planting and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, but that sometimes there you would have them potentially in sort of January, February, um, which is say earlier when you're still sort of looking forward to that spring. And it was a kind of, you know, a ritual that basically makes sure that the spring comes essentially. So these are fertility mm -hmm. rituals that then make sure that you actually get there. They actually get the fertility. Um, <laughs> and so it's not necessarily unheard of to have, sort of New Year's in, in midwinter. Um, but the, the real question becomes why Jesus's birthday gets tied to the 25th of December. Right. Mm -hmm. So of course the real, you know, as people say, the reason for the season is not actually capitalism. 
and <laughs> presents. It is, in fact, because of Jesus's birthday. But, you know, it's not at all clear when that actually was. Um, mm-hmm. Not only in the sense of, of course, what day it was, but also he was presumably born actually a few years before the year zero. Right. And this is for people who look at these things historically and sort of figure it out. And so there are a lot of theories, you know, that the wise men actually showed up when he was a little bit older, when he was basically a toddler and brought him presents. This sort of makes sense in various ways and various traditions. But anyhow, so the idea of when he may have been born, there's no clear um, delineation of a season Mm -hmm. in the Bible. So there are a lot of possibilities. One of the sort of main ones... (laughs) is that Easter, of course, is directly tied to Passover. Mm-hmm. So that absolutely happens in the spring. And there was a, a theory, essentially, that he may have died on or about the same day that he was conceived. Mm. Right? And that's sort of the idea, right, the, you know, he's part of the Trinity, so yeah. the ghost, right, the father, the son. So that essentially, right, he came to Earth in conception... And then left it on death. Basically. Okay. Right. And that this was a sort of full cycle. So these were sort of the same day. There's a parallel. I believe that Moses had um, been born and died on the same day. This is sort of. tradition. Yeah. Um, I I was looking this up because of the discussion about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. Oh, yeah. Um, on well, the, the eve of Rosh that, Hashanah. Yes. And of course, it's something the th- about theory that um, only a great Sadiq dies on, like a, you know, very extra holy good yeah. person. <laughs> can You can die, like, at the very end of the year. Yes. Or in Moses's case, he got, like, his whole entire full last year. Right. And then died on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, I assume that really the tradition about dying on Rosh Hashanah is a tradition that comes from the idea that, of course, that's sort of the most horrible time for someone to die, because then your whole family's Mm -hmm. in mourning at a time that should be joyous. (laughs) So how do you make them joyous? Well, you say their family member was clearly a a tzaddik. Yeah. Um, It's a good tradition, though. I mean, I approve. She was one. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to argue about that, so. No. But, yeah, you know, and Shakespeare, interestingly, may have been born and died on the same year, so... (laughs) I mean, yes. the same day. April same 23rd. day. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Not the same year. Oh, my God. That would have been terrible. Ah. <laughs> no. Um, but anyhow, yeah. So that idea of, uh, but in this case, that his conception, and right, because because he is God, it's essentially that idea that divine came to earth and then left again, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. So it's a sort of full yearly cycle. So, um you know, so the fact that then it's tied to Passover gives you sort of a date. Um, so March 25th is around the solstice. Yeah. And was a sort of good date to land on. And if you count back nine months, this would mean he was born on or forward nine months. <laughs> this mm-hmm. would mean he's born on December 25th. Um, now, you can sort of quibble like why... You know, it could have been March 15th and December 15th, whatever. Um, this is true. And the question is sort of, it, it gets you from March to December, but doesn't necessarily get you specifically the 25th. Right. And so that may come from syncretism, which we have definitely talked about with Halloween. Um, mm-hmm. 
and which is the idea that other cultures, holidays, traditions meld, mm-hmm. right? And specifically, create sort of new. Yeah, specifically, the winter solstice is December twenty first. Right. right. Yeah. So there was a lot going on right around there. Yes. Well, you've got a few things going on, right? So first of all, uh, Christianity, it's a couple hundred years before December 25th is absolutely the, like, definitive day. Because, you Christianity is just getting started. And so by the time it is getting started, it's really headed into the Roman Empire. Um, also, of course, as we know, Ethiopia, um, right? Yes. It becomes Christian very early as well. But in the Roman Empire... Um, you have, of course, Rome. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and Roman mythology, all the things we know about, right? We call it mythology. It was, of course, their religion. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this, you get things like Saturnalia, which is the big yes. winter sort of so successful. Um, December sort of 17th to 23rd, basically. Um, and it's a, basically a carnival time. And, you know, I mean that in the same way that, for example, Mardi Gras is a carnival time, right? It's a time to let loose... To sort of, you know, the Lord becomes the servant and the servant becomes the master. Um, all of those sort of upside down, topsy-turvy things let off some steam, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in honor of Saturn. <laughs> um, and a lot of that arguably m- remains part of Christian winter festival tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and this becomes really important because as we sort of introduce St. Nicholas, Santa, whose day is officially December 6th, we do start to get that whole month of December, right? For festivals related to Christmas. Um, then, of course, the New Year. And there are things like um, Feast of Fools and the Lord of Misrule. A lot of these things that didn't, you know, are sort of mm-hmm. syncretic with things that were also part of Saturnalia, right? Um, and not just that. I mean, these are things that exist sort of around the world. These types of carnival festival atmospheres where you have to let people blow off steam, Right. Um, and the example that usually comes up in class is, of course, the modern movies and also, I think it's a TV series, The Purge. Right? Oh, <laughs> where, yeah. Um, where, <laughs> like, everything is legal for 24 hours. Um, that's not quite the point. But, of course, the idea is that, um, particularly in a society that, let's say, is not democratic... <laughs> Even in a society that is. I mean, Athens did this stuff. Dionysus, we talked Mm -hmm. about him, right? Um, But even in a society that isn't, or particular in a society that isn't, right? You have to let people blow off steam or they are going to rebel. Yeah. Right. So carnival frequently looks like a time when all things are equal um, and, you know, people who are sort of held down by their masters most of the year get to like rebel and whatever but really of course it's sort of scripted into the year you get this couple weeks to blow off steam so that the rest of the year you don't go on strike or rebel or whatever it is right Mm -hmm. but anyway so saturnalia is definitely one of those kind of times um and a lot of that absolutely sticks around um for the winter festivals as we sort of move into christian europe um That being said, it doesn't give us Christmas directly. Um, One of the things that might is that the birth of one of the sun gods, (laughs) Sol, um, is is December 25th. I didn't realize Sol was the name of a god. Yeah. Um, And it's a little bit weird, and it's hard to know. It's 
we don't know a lot really about this. Um, the rituals are also connected to rituals of Mithras. Mm-hmm. Mithras is kind of connected to this guy. He's not the same. There's a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of people who sort of argued that he may be the sun god, but that does not seem to have ever been true. They were not conflated. But Mithras is definitely important to the rituals, or the sun god is important to the rituals of Mithras. Mm -hmm. Um, And so December 25th was important for that reason. It also was, um, the rituals of Mithras were something that the Roman army really liked. And the Roman okay. army is fairly international. So I think we talked about this in one of our decolonizing episodes. Like, for example, that in mm-hmm. Roman Britain, you had people from all over. You did have people from Africa, right? Um, yeah. The Roman army was really international. I mean, wherever they had conquered, you got soldiers who joined the legions, right? The same as people joined the army today. Like, see the world, you know, become a citizen. This is, of course, the ideal. It has never always worked the way it's supposed to. <laughs> But supposedly, you are supposed to become, obviously, a freaking citizen if you serve your country in the army. Anyway. You can still get the same deal if you serve 10 years in the French Foreign Legion, I think. Yeah, right? You can I mean, you're a supposed French to get it in ours. You yeah. clearly don't always, but you should. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, so you see the world, you become a citizen, you learn some stuff, you know, and then you go home and become a pillar of society. Or you move somewhere else and become a pillar of society, you know? Yeah. And... So in some ways, right, this was a very unifying religion, kind of, right? It's not one Mm -hmm. of the things we think of as sort of Roman in the sense of we think, you know, like Jupiter, Juno, (laughs) uh, Venus. But this was a kind of unifying religion, right? The Roman army, and therefore it was kind of international. Um, Yeah. So in some ways, it makes a really good thing to hang your hat on if you're looking for a syncretic way to sort of encourage Christianity into the mix, um, putting it on the 25th, a day that is important, you know, for the sun god. Yeah. Which maintains a lot of important symbolism, of course, right? The sun as god. I mean, this is absolutely important to Christianity as well. Um, But also maintains that sense of it being a more universal religion, right? Mm -hmm. So not just Rome Roman, but pan-Roman, kind of, right? So Mithras, you know, and the role that he sort of played in, or the importance of the sun god to Mithras, and the fact that the sun god, sort of the birth of the sun was celebrated on December 25th, um, Mm -hmm. all of these things are important. Um, It's also worth pointing out, interestingly, (laughs) that Mithras is originally Persian, uh, Zoroastrian. Um, and the Romans absolutely knew that. They really thought of him as a Persian god. So they really did see this as a kind of, you know, pan, not just pan-Roman, mm-hmm. but kind of international religion. The funny thing is that, of course, by the time it gets to them, through sort of Greece and gets to Rome, um, the Roman rituals connected to Mithras are definitely not the Persian rituals connected to Mithras. Mm-hmm. right? And the way Romans sort of thought of Mithras is not the way he exists in Zoroastrianism. So um, even though they definitely knew that that was the connection, he's really very different by the time we get to this point. (laughs) I think we should Um, just take a step back and say, like, Mithras, if you haven't heard of him, you're in good company because he's not, like, super well-known. He was a a god, and I believe he underwent some sort of resurrection um, around this time of year. 
but part of part of the reason that it's called the Mysteries of Mithras is well, I guess this is it's a mystery cult, but also they didn't write a lot of stuff down. Yep. Um so we don't have like we know some stuff about the rituals because there'll be like relief carvings or whatever yes. pictures that people painted. We don't really have texts or you know descriptions of the ceremonies um and in some cases i believe that roman religion was it was just very ritual centric as opposed to being about those things anyway mm-hmm. um somewhat problematically the sort of um new atheist movement has somewhat adopted the idea of mithras as like the origin of christmas and written a lot of stuff about it that's not necessarily yeah (laughs) it's because on the one hand if you you really want to discredit a religion you know being like look behind the curtain it's actually roman paganism oh no right but (laughs) But it can make it hard if you're doing research to actually, like, dig out what is historical fact. And when historical fact is kind of like, ah, there's this guy and stuff happened, but we don't really know too much. It That makes it even harder. So. Right. Yeah, and that's basically it, right? And so um, it's, and like I said, even the distinction between Mithras and the sun, who are mm-hmm. not the same... Um, and that although the sun is important to Mithras, it's definitely not specific to the mysteries of Mithras. Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, you know, the resurrection thing is a little bit unclear. <laughs> um, and may actually be syncretic with Christianity, which is to say <laughs> that might be something that people read into it backwards because of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um we he's definitely connected with a bull, right? He kills this bull, presumably. And that's, you know, oh gosh, there's so much hmm. symbolism connected to killing bulls in however many religions There's a bull of at. heaven in Gilgamesh. Yes. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and of course, the, the cattle of the sun. And, you know, I mean, yeah. so you can go on and on. <laughs> anyway, so, but this is one of his big things. And there are a lot of, um, you know, there are a lot of the reliefs that, I just mentioned, uh, deal with this, right? A lot of the portrayals mm-hmm. deal with this. Um, there, and then there's the, some of them show a banquet, uh, where apparently Mithras and the sun, Sol, um, are banqueting maybe on the bull, apparently, right? So this would be sort of the sacrifice, okay. but I guess because they're gods, you know, they feast on it themselves. This still sounds a lot like that scene from Gilgamesh where they kill the, the bull of heaven and then they oh yeah absolutely eat it I mean it's a very 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 old yeah. sensibility Dionysus appears as a bull a lot and a bull um, was absolutely sacrificed to him or um, in Egypt when Egypt and Rome well Egypt and Greece and then Egypt and Rome connect you get a lot of syncretism and there's the the bull there who is right the Epis bull who is kept alive mm-hmm. and you know was basically sacred and um, anyway, so, you know, there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of things that go into this moment here. It's unclear if Mithras may have been, like, born from a rock. We're not quite sure. Anyway, um, 
he's sort of portrayed, but he's portrayed like emerging from something, you know, like this. Sure. So it's, it, but you know, is it an actual birth? I don't know. Like, it's not entirely clear. Um, anyway, so there's, there's a lot of stuff that isn't entirely clear <laughs> about Mithras. Um, yeah, because of course the, the mysteries were secret and you did not write them down. And then it did get suppressed ultimately by Christianity. Even if Christianity sort of, you know, um, kind of rode its coattails for a while and took over the date, yeah. it does end up getting suppressed. So then, you know, you don't get people writing about it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes all that we know are, of course, you know, maybe Christian authors writing about things that they may or may not fully understand. Right, of course, becomes kind of a, a problem. But anyway, so all of these things... <laughs> um, are absolutely true. Um, but that might explain the, the specific chosen date of the 25th of December. Um, it's also just weirdly interesting, by the way, because we did mention Hanukkah. Hanukkah starts on the 25th of Kislev. Mm -hmm. But to think that that 25th makes an important difference would be to assume that Christianity was still that closely tied to Judaism. It's possible, but Maybe unlikely. Yeah. But maybe the coincidence of the 25th of Kislev with the 25th of December, the birth of the sun, you know, the 25th starts to seem like an important day, basically. <laughs> um, yeah. And essentially, once that becomes the day, for sure, then everything else kind of rearranges around it. So the Feast of the Annunciation, right, uh, when the angel tells Mary that she will bear God's mm -hmm. son, that she is now pregnant, etc., um, is... Now on the 25th of March. Right. So that does then become the reason that the birth is on the 25th of December. <laughs> the Annunciation right. is on the 25th of March. But of course, that is actually fixed a couple hundred years after December 25th is fixed as the birth. But yeah, so that, but that does then sort of organize the calendar. This is all very interesting. <laughs> so there we are. Interesting That's how we math. In yes. terms of pregnancy and stuff, because technically pregnancy is like 40 weeks, but they count you as being pregnant for two weeks before you actually are yep. in modern times. So you're really pregnant for 38 weeks, which is like nine and a half months. But this is also, um, you know, threes are important, right? Right. Ultimately, we get the Trinity. So the idea that nine months, three times three, right? It mm -hmm. sort of has to be exact. <laughs> right? I was figuring you there's got to be around a... with extra days or weeks. Yeah, yeah. There's got to be a benefit to carrying a a deity as a as a fetus and right. maybe having a slightly shorter than average pregnancy. Exactly nine. Yeah. That, also a really easy benefit. birth. I mean, all of these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, there you go. I mean, <laughs> um, but anyway. So actually, then speaking of the birth, figure we'll step it up a little bit. Once we have all of this settled, when the 25th of December becomes the day, eventually, so we're now going to jump forward basically a thousand years. Not quite. I mean, this gets okay. fixed around the 200s, um, or okay. in the 200s. So jumping forward um, to how, how do you celebrate Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. Now that this is definitely Jesus' birthday, how do you celebrate it? Um, well, of course, trees are late, so we're going to get to those last Okay. But you do get things like Christmas pageants mm -hmm. um, and nativity scenes, right? Absolutely. I mean, 
you sort of start acting it out. Um, and you have pageants about the, you know, the wise men coming to give presents, all this stuff. Um, and so this is a sort of interesting moment. Um, something I actually didn't plan to talk about, but we might as well mention is that one of the wise men is usually portrayed as African, mm -hmm. um, black. And the others, of course, are to be Middle Eastern like everybody else is. But in practice, that tends to mean they're white. Of course, right. they, of course they weren't, obviously. But anyway. I mean, like, if you grew up in Wisconsin, they're probably all white, because that's yes. what the church maybe has. Right. Depends on your part of Wisconsin, yes. I guess, but the part I grew up in. Right. Because Milwaukee, yeah. probably, you know, you'd have some yeah. variation. But, um, yes, but so, of course, they, they wouldn't be, no one would be white to begin with, but also mm -hmm. definitely one of the wise men should be black. Um, yeah. And that's actually a very long-standing tradition in into the Middle Ages. I mean, that does start in the Middle Ages. So, um, but in addition to this, so the very idea of the nativity scene, right, um, and pageants that sort of portray Christ's birth or that tell stories around this idea, they ha they have existed, you know, probably for a very, very long time. Um, but they start to definitely become really popular um, in sort of, as we head towards the high Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. So sort of the 1100s. Yeah. And in 1223, uh, in Greccio, this is in Italy, um, St. Francis decides to set up a nativity scene. And this is frequently okay. sort of seen as the first one. It isn't actually the first. Like, he didn't invent it. But he absolutely did popularize it. Okay. I mean, once he did it, it like then it was like a tradition. <laughs> like, then people did I mean, it, right? he's St. Francis. Right. So... But also, his idea of a nativity scene, because again, this is St. Francis, was to basically be in a barn, mm -hmm. and he had a crib with straw, and a real donkey, and a real ox. Okay. Right? Because this is St. Francis's point, of course, the animals are very important, right? Mm -hmm. They were the witnesses. You know, there weren't any people who were worthy of being witnesses. Right. All the animals were the, right? Because the people turned turned away, right? So the animals are the worthy witnesses. Um, so Francis playing this up, um, but also just playing up the idea of the Christ child. Um, this is something else that the Middle Ages, we talked about this a little bit, I think, um, when we were talking about mysticism. Mm -hmm. We talked about bridal mysticism, and we did talk about sort of the um, women who had a real mystic connection to the child Christ. Yes, Right. Associating themselves with Mary as a mother and yes. the Christ child. Yes. Um, and so that becomes really important. Uh, and there are a number of reasons why. Uh, but Francis also sort of really is invested in that. In many ways, for Francis, I mean, it's a very political statement, right? Because any child can be the Christ child. That is essentially mm -hmm. the point, right? You take care of all children like they're the Christ child. Because... Children are, as we think of them, right? Innocent, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and of course, it brings back things like Herod's slaughter of the innocents, when he's, which is one of the big things you might perform as a pageant at Christmas, right? Herod is looking yeah. for the Christ child, and he slaughters all these other kids, right? Um, and, you know, not just in the Middle Ages, but even like into the modern era, there are plenty of hospitals in Europe and probably else in the US that are called things like the something of the holy innocents. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, you know, they were frequently Catholic oh. hospitals run by nuns. They may not be today. Um, but that was the I point. I never realized that was connected to that story. 
Interesting. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that that's the point, right? So that all of these children are important, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, like the Christ child. So, you know, for Francis, it's a very... And this is, of course, the current Pope, right? It's a very sort of egalitarian, some might say communist with a little c, <laughs> commentary on a world that tends to be far more classist, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. Um, so here's Francis, right? The crib with the empty straw, a real donkey, a real ox. Um, and he was going to do, you know, have mass, sort of Christmas mass. Which is unusual in Christianity, I think, that to have a mass outside of a church. Yeah. I mean, it sort of depends. I mean, A, yes, because of sort of the structure, <laughs> right? And the hierarchy. Everyone, mm-hmm. right? There's a huge hierarchy, the ritualistic hierarchy. Um, but this is sort of Francis's point um, that you don't need any of that. Yeah. And also shouldn't probably have any of it. <laughs> he was a dangerous guy. I he mean. was. I mean, he really was in a lot of ways, yes. Um, and it's why we've only had one pope ever take his name. And that was kind of a shock, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, and so his point here, right, that you all you need is what Christ himself had, which was nothing. Right? The animals. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, <laughs> if it was good enough for him, it's good enough for us. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, you know, getting ready to do this. And um, there are a couple descriptions of this scene, basically. Um, the later one that has become better known is Bonaventure's description. Uh, Bonaventure sort of becomes the, I mean, he's also a saint, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But his version of sort of Francis's life and the events becomes the official version. So his version... Um, He says, uh, so the man of God, which is Francis, um, stood before the crib, filled with devotion, bathed in tears and overflowing with joy. The solemnities of mass were celebrated over the crib with Francis, the deacon of Christ, singing the Holy Gospel. John of Greccio claimed that he saw a very beautiful boy sleeping in the crib, whom the blessed Francis seemed to rouse from sleep by embracing him in both arms. Hmm. All right. So... Francis's celebration of this nativity scene and of the mass over this nativity scene basically creates for John of Greccio creates this vision of presumably right the Christ child actually there with them sleeping in the crib mm-hmm. right and Francis rousing him from sleep you get this sort of sense of Francis um you know who's seen himself kind of as at this point as an alter Christus right as another Christ um mm-hmm. In this case, he's, he is more like Mary, mm-hmm. right? Rousing the Christ child. Um, which is actually how Christ himself sort of, I mean Christ, how Francis himself sort of saw things frequently was himself as Mary. We talked about that too in our episode of Iconography. We mentioned yes. uh, St. Francis as Mary at the foot of the cross in some, in the windows in, I think, Chartres Cathedral. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. He saw himself as following sort of both Marys, right, the Virgin and the Magdalene. Um, but then, you know, as the official version of his life gets written, he very much becomes directly parallel to Christ. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, um, here we see, though, Francis very much more as the Virgin, right? Rousing the child from sleep. And we have another version of the same story. 
um, that is sort of the earlier version by Thomas of Chilano. Um, and his version was supposed to sort of have been destroyed. He had the earlier, he has the earliest or earlier versions of pretty much most of the events in Francis's life. Um, and oh. after Bonaventure sort of wrote his official version, they were sort of <laughs> supposed to go away, but some of them lasted. So here we go. Um, and in his account, the vision, he doesn't actually mention who has it. He says just a virtuous man. Um, but, you know, same guy, presumably. Um, in this case, right, he sees um, a small boy lying lifeless in the crib. He saw the priest of God, Francis, approach him and rouse the child as though from a heavy sleep. Okay. Nor is the vision improper when the Christ child had been forgotten in the hearts of many and whose hearts he was revived by his servant, St. Francis. Hmm. All right. So Thomas also gives us his reading, <laughs> which is, first of all, it's not that Francis doing all of this just sort of conjures the presence of the Christ child as a beautiful boy. No. Right. Uh, we actually, Francis is actually reviving the Christ child in people's hearts by doing this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, which is also a reminder, of course, that Christ's birth already foretells his death. I mean, that's sort of the point, right? <laughs> right. And so this idea, though, that Francis sort of keeps him alive. Um, so it's this brilliant symbolism um, that requires the participation of ordinary people, the ordinary people watching this and having these visions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um and so we get this really interesting moment of this recreation on some level of the nativity that is completed by the visions that these people have. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, Francis isn't just even participating in the nativity. He's also kind of participating in the resurrection, right? He is resurrecting Christ metaphorically in people's hearts. Right. <laughs> so anyway, this is fantastic. Um, it definitely sort of popularizes the nativity scene as something that's important. And it's interesting because in 1207, uh, Pope Innocent III wrote a letter um, complaining, basically, (laughs) about theatrical games. Mm -hmm. And remember, so this is 1223 that Francis is doing this. And in 1207, uh, Pope Innocent III had Mm -hmm. sort of written um, a letter to the archbishop in Poland um, where he said, quote, uh, sometimes theatrical games are performed in these churches and not only are monstrous masked spectacles introduced in the churches for the purpose of mockery, but in the three feasts of the year, which immediately follow the birth of Christ, deacons, priests and subdeacons in turn presume to exercise their foolish mockeries and through the offensive mm-hmm. ravings of their gestures make clerical glory vile in the sight of the people. You should take care to eradicate from your churches the aforementioned custom, or rather corruption, of ludi, meaning games, theatrical games, that you may show yourselves to be zealous for divine worship and holy orders. Wow, that's heavy duty. Yep. So, (laughs) um, he doesn't imply that all performance is forbidden, right? Mm -hmm. But masked performances in churches, um, festivities, pretty clearly he's sort of talking about things like the Feast of Fools, um, that those sorts of things should stop, right? Uh, but obviously, you know, it presu- it led, it definitely led people to sort of question the legitimacy of any type of performance. Mm-hmm. And in 1263, so that was 1207, Francis does his thing in 1223, and in 1263, there's a gloss that someone sort of wrote trying to interpret what Innocent wanted that said, 
this person sort of decided um, that, quote, it is not prohibited to represent the nativity of the Lord, Herod, the Magi, and how Rachel wept for her children, which are associated with these feasts, about which mention is made here. When such things rather lead men to remorse than to licentiousness or sensual pleasure, just as on Easter, the tomb of the Lord and other things are represented for the exciting of devotion. All right. So this author sort of decided um, things that are serious and religious can still be done uh, and okay. leads off with the nativity. Right. Um, and it's possible in some ways that Francis, Francis is sort of <laughs> um, as an advocate. Right. I mean, Francis is a sort of advocate for mm -hmm. um, participation and performance. I mean, and the ways in which that this includes people in religion and also hopefully makes them more interested in religion. Um, yeah. But there is a sense that uh, what he did may have sort of helped not just popularize it, but also um, definitely the Franciscans are interested in seeing Francis's role as having really demonstrated that this is a holy and serious and important devotional tool. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so the nativity scene absolutely sticks around. I mean, we still have them. Right? Um, and yep. there's some question I think about, would we, if it weren't for Francis, um, we still have Christmas pageants. Absolutely. Right. But they absolutely tend to center around the nativity and the Magi. We don't do as much with Herod these days. Um, I mean, from a yeah. practical perspective, mm -hmm. if you're bringing your kids to one of these things, yes, the demonstration of a bunch of young children getting killed is terrifying. I mean... That is true. I'm not 100% sure. Like, I remember being somewhat terrified just by seeing a crucifix when I was a kid because I had never seen one before. Yes. But... Um, and suddenly I was sitting there and going, look, that guy, I don't think he's tied to it. <laughs> but, like, you know, if if you want to interest a kid in a religion, I feel like today people often go with, like, the carrot method rather than the stick method yes. or whatever. Well, that is certainly true today, yes. But, you know, even in the Middle Ages, that's definitely kind of what ends up happening, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and the Slaughter of the Innocents, I don't know that it's obviously it was a very popular sort of theme. I don't know that children specifically were taken to it, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, it's all fun and games until you have right. to deal with the nightmares later on. Um, but at the same time, it's also a reminder that a lot of the rituals surrounding, maybe not child-friendly. Yeah. Not the sort of thing you would take kids to, even in the Middle Ages necessarily, uh, but a very popular theme. Mm -hmm. Um I think there's a very good painting by Caravaggio of... Oh, yeah. There's some great stuff. Of it, yeah. We'll, we'll post some good pictures. Um, yeah. That being said, it is worth pointing out that there is a strong sense of punishment that surrounds Christmas. So the Slaughter of the Innocents isn't too far off in some ways, right? Um, and it's the sort of thing that we're going to get into a sec with Santa, but um, mm -hmm. it's the sort of thing that Francis was not going for, right? Uh so he did sort of went out and that the nativity has become very important. The Christ child is very important. All that aspect of Christianity, mysticism, very important. At the same time, the sense of sort of punishment and capitalism, I mean, arguably have certainly 
if not outweighed, weighed equally quite a lot of the time. So that's an issue. I do want to bring up one more thing, though, about the nativity. And that is that the ways it sort of gets changed as you move towards the modern era. Um, so as we hit sort of the early modern period, particularly, um, it's always been political. I mean, it was for Francis originally, right? Mm -hmm. um, and stays that way a lot of times. Like, who gets included, you know? And this becomes a sort of common thing, as, as I said, as you hit the early modern period, where a famous religious, I mean, a famous um, political figure might be included or, you know local people of various types who are important might be included. This is something that's still true today. I mean, you know, you could have, like, President Obama at your nativity scene, a little statue of him or whatever, right? <laughs> um, sure. So these are the things, like, people still absolutely do, right? Um, but it's worth pointing out that one of the more fun variations on this tradition comes from early modern uh, Catalan, uh, and that's the Cagagné. <laughs> and, um... It means the pooper. <laughs> and it's traditionally a peasant or a farmer. But again, these days can be a, you know, political figure or someone uh, who has their pants pulled down and is pooping. Okay. They are traditionally placed sort of away from the like center of the nativity scene. <laughs> but the idea is it's kind of like the marginalia in, you know, medieval manuscripts or, yeah. of course, on cathedrals, the gargoyles and so on, uh, where you have this sort of figure who is... Definitely on the margins. Um, you know, scatology has a lot to do with things <laughs> in the margins of manuscripts as well. Lots of sort of pooping and so on. Um, and so the idea of this person, you know, it's a, it is definitely a comment. It's not clear what the origins are. It's not entirely clear really what the comment is originally supposed to be. <laughs> but there's definitely a sense of this person, um, as I said, as being similar to sort of the margins of manuscripts where you imagine that the idea is um, to put in a little bit of, um, not necessarily disrespect, right? But common everyday life in the middle of this sort of holy scene, mm -hmm. right? Like, yes, the gorgeous nativity and supposedly the birth was perfect and there wasn't pain and this and that. But, you know, somewhere you still have the farmer pooping, right? Yeah. Um, and so there is that sense of... The reminder of what still happens on the margins of life, or what happens in real life, or, you know, takes everything down a peg. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that is a fantastic um, <laughs> yes, tradition. Uh, still a huge tradition in Catalan. I mean, like I said, it's from the early modern period. It continues. It's very important. Um, so there we are. Yes, I wanted to bring that up uh, before we continued nice. on to Santa. <laughs> yes, Santa. Yes. Another, like, from a modern standpoint, uh, weird tradition. Yeah. I mean, I guess in a sense, right, like, Christ's appearance brings the gift of, what's, what, um, salvation. That's the word I'm looking for, salvation, right? So, but here we have a guy who's based on a saint from mm -hmm. the early... I don't know, the Roman era? Yeah, he's St. Nicholas from Mira. And he brings stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, he's from Mira. So tell us a story in case they're like me and grew up a heathen and don't know. Yes. Well, I'm so still a heathen, he's really. traditionally seen as sort of um, 270 to 343. 
are his sort of traditional dates. And he is a bishop, right? And so in modern Turkey, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so he's a bishop in modern Turkey. Um, and he is a Mirabolite, uh, which is to say that he oozes myrrh. Or some sort of holy unction, I guess, that, you know, we might as well call myrrh. There are a number of saints who do this. He oozes it? Yes. Like, like yes. sweating? Except he sweats out myrrh. Yes. Okay. So his his relics do. I mean, his body does. Oh, um, So if okay. you go to visit him today, you know, you can get things sort of dipped in it, I guess. Um, but yeah, there are a number of saints who okay. do this. Um, it's a specific thing that saints can do. It's a specific category of saints, right? <laughs> um, okay. And it's, you know, I mean, it's supposed to be healing or all of the same things that relics are, mm-hmm. except that this is then, anyone can sort of take it with them, right? I mean, there's always more being produced. So unlike a more normal saint, where they only have so many relics, I mean, your body parts, right? Um, you can't necessarily spread things around to everybody. Uh, what happens in those cases is that, like, people who work in the shrines will frequently will wipe clods on the body or something and then mm-hmm. put them in a little card and, you know, so you can okay. buy a, that type of relic. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite the same, you know. But someone like St. Nicholas, who continuously produces this, um, then people can sort of have this holy unction, you know, and they can, you can really have it. You can have a th- little rag that has been dipped a little bit of it, you know. Um, yeah, so he's a very important saint in this way. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there are a number of stories about him that might explain sort of how he gets to be Santa Claus, basically. Mm-hmm. And so the ones that are sort of the most frequently depicted in the Middle Ages, um, and that I guess maybe we still know today, it depends, um, <laughs> the ones that we might still know, yeah, are essentially um, the sort of first big one. There's one where three, there's a few variations on this one, um, but essentially... Um, three students show up in an inn. The innkeeper kills them for their money. St. Nicholas finds out. I mean, he figures out because, you know, he arrives and he knows these things and he's a saint. He sort of, like, probably hears their bones calling out to him or something. Uh, he resurrects mm-hmm. them. Okay. Um, and confronts the innkeeper. Um, there's another variation on this where the innkeeper maybe actually lures in three children and kind of plans to, like, Sweeney Todd them. Because it's a time of famine. <laughs> um, mm. But I would say the better known version tends to be that they're students. But, you know, they're still young kids. Um, yeah. But in that one, they're robbed. Right. So the point, of course, the, in some ways, the money. Right. So they're robbed. Nicholas resurrects them, gets their money back. And in some versions, somehow, the innkeeper apparently ends up connected with one of Santa's helpers in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's Père Futard. <laughs> Yes. Um, we used to talk about him in, in French class um, yes. from time to time. That like He basically comes along with Santa, or with Saint Nick, I guess. Yes. They they do not... But then they, they you know, they... Um, he hits the bad children with sticks. Basically. Yeah. And so this is where I said, like, the slaughter of the innocents, the idea of punishment around Christmas time is a really strong theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you get punished if you haven't been a good child, right? And there's, 
I mean, presumably on some level, that's because um, there's this comparison with the Christ child, right? Have you behaved yourself to be worthy of the Christ child? (laughs) To be worthy of sort of presence, the way he got presence, you know? Um, But it is a kind of horrific economy. I mean... (laughs) Gold, frankincense, and... and Myrrh, yeah. Matchbox cars. Yes. And of course, gold, frankincense, and myrrh are all symbolic of Christ as, right, as God and King and so on. Um, but the other thing about this, of course, is that like Parafutard, as many of the helpers, um, come along on the 6th of December, which is St. Nicholas's Day. Mm-hmm. Right? So that is something that Europe has that the U.S. doesn't really do. Um, where it really, it is still very much connected to St. Nicholas. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so Parafutard is sort of connected with that innkeeper. Um, he then gets kind of impressed into Nicholas's service, basically. But allowed to punish children, which is kind of his thing. I guess. Anyway, um, there's another tale also about, in this one, about famine, um, where Nicholas convinces sailors with a shipload of wheat to unload some for these starving people after promising that when the sailors reach their destination, they won't be short any wheat to sell. Hmm. So they unload enough wheat for sowing and to serve as food for more than a year. And when they reach their destination, they find out they have just as much wheat as when they started that they can sell. So, uh, and then the most famous miracle, probably, for St. Nicholas, is there's a man who has got three daughters, and he can't afford dowries, and he thinks he's going to have to sell them into prostitution. Uh, And over three successive nights, St. Nicholas throws three bags of gold into their house. Not down the chimney, because that is not a thing that exists yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, throws three bags of gold into their house so that each daughter can get married. Um, And this is probably connected to... The pawnbroker's insignia, which is also connected to the Medici's coat of arms, probably. Uh, but these three bags of gold that are then symbolized by these, the three balls. St. Nicholas is the patron saint of pawnbrokers. Mm-hmm. Presumably because, you know, if you pray to him, then you won't have to sell your stuff into prostitution. Mm-hmm. Or to the pawnbroker. <laughs> anyway, the pawnbroker will get their money back. Anyhow. Um, so you notice, right? Na- Nicholas's legends. Yes, he resurrects these kids. So that's great. He's connected to sort of helping children. Um, but it really surrounds this sense of economy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he resurrects these children. I said in one version, you know, gets their money back from the innkeeper. Um, then we have the sort of the wheat that is replenished so that the sailors can make all their money back and then throwing the bags of gold so that the girl, you know, the women mm-hmm. have dowries. Um, so there's this sense of sort of money connected to his legacy. <laughs> and it's sort of, Interesting, because um, in addition to Perfutard, of course, is the French version, um, probably fairly well known, honestly, in the U.S. now, is that the Dutch Sinterklaas is assisted by Swarte Piet, mm-hmm. Black Pete, um, who is probably an African, but a Moor, which is to say sort of Islamic from Spain, um, and has traditionally been portrayed in blackface. And he has a sack. And children are told if they're bad, that he'll put you in the sack and take you away to Spain. Which, of course, at the time that this legend is invented, (laughs) presumably, um, he hasn't... We don't know about him having been written down necessarily before, like, the 1800s. But this part of the legend pretty clearly connects him to a time when Spain was under Muslim rule. Mm -hmm. Before the the Reconquista and the Inquisition... Yeah, which would take us way back. So yeah. he hasn't necessarily been around in this form that long, but 
there that connection clearly is there. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you know, this is one of those clearly sort of racist traditions that the Dutch are nonetheless insisting isn't racist. But again, right, a reminder of like that Santa's quote unquote helper is really there to punish kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he might give candy to kids who are good, but nonetheless, I mean, there is this sort of yeah. <laughs> dreadful sense. Um, Even in the U.S., our- we give um, coal, right, to bad kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's in Europe as well. Um, sometimes kids get coal. Mm-hmm. But then, finally, we should mention Krampus. <laughs> um, yes. Because Krampus is not sort of necessarily officially connected to St. Nicholas, but comes along similarly. Krampusnacht is December 5th, right? The eve of St. Nicholas Day. Um, and, of course, he punishes kids who are not going to be rewarded by St. Nick the next day. He's kind of a goat demon or something. Yeah, he's basically a sort of devil. Yeah. And it's unclear where he comes from or how old he is. Hmm. So by the 1600s, he gets paired with St. Nick, which is to say, you know, Krampusnacht becomes the 5th of December. Um, Is he pre-Christian? No freaking idea. (laughs) It's not clear at all. Um, He clearly seems it, but it's just very unclear really where he comes from or how he happened into this. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so he, but there we are. I he's mean, like a Central European type of type of fellow. He's right? sort of Germanic, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, which is fun, uh, but you know, it's also a reminder. Sort of, everyone has the sense of Saint Nicholas having a, someone along who punishes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also worth pointing out that Krampus, the way he looks today, doesn't necessarily have to be pre-Christian at all, because I mean, the devil is very Christian, right? So there could be something syncretic going on, but also he could kind of be a little bit of personification if you think right santa comes along to you know then maybe a little devil demon comes along to punish kids i mean mm-hmm. it's not sort of that far off um sure. <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily have to be pre-christian anyway so i do want to say though that in the spirit of all of this uh that the view of santa of saint nick as basically a sort of crass capitalist is not new to the modern era I mean, the idea that Christmas has kind of been swamped by the idea of presents, um, we don't blame it on Santa, necessarily. I would blaming the Coca-Cola <laughs> company, but... Sure. But I want to give this moment to shout out 12th, 12th century Arras, Jean okay. Baudel, so 1160 to 1210. He writes a miracle play, the play of St. Nicholas. <laughs> um, it's super brilliant. And it's incredibly cynical. And in this play... All right, let's see if I can summarize it quickly. Um, what essentially happens is... Um, we have... Um, a battle between Christians and pagans. Um, and the pagans the sort of performative referent Mm -hmm. (laughs) is a kind of indeterminate Semitic religion, um, a sort of cross between their sort of Jewish and Islamic reference. Um, So there's the pagan sort of repeat. They invoke Muhammad. They mention a synagogue. Anyway, so it's a little unclear, um, (laughs) but there is a sort of nondescript pagan, but possibly also Semitic religion. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have Christians. Um, And it starts out with, this sort of quote-unquote false pagan idol 
Tervigan, who's covered in gold leaf. Um, and at the beginning of the play, the pagan king asks Tervigan um, if he, the king, will beat the Christians who have invaded his land. So the Christians are the invaders. This is important, right? The Crusades, Christians are invaders. All right, so the Christians have invaded. Um, Tervigan both, both smiles and weeps. And this prophecy is correctly interpreted as meaning the king will be victorious over the Christians, but he will eventually repudiate Tervigan. Mm. So despite the fact he's going to beat the Christians, he's still presumably going to convert to Christianity. Um, the king decries the prophecy, but of course it turns out to be true, right? right. Tervigan is not a false idol in the traditional sense. <laughs> he is correct. Right. His prophecy is correct. Um, okay, so... The king gathers all his rulers who owe him allegiance to go battle the Christian army. Um, a messenger gets sent out to go get them. Uh, our messenger stops in a tavern to get, have some drinks. And we have this sort of scene that is clearly <laughs> set in a tavern in, in Arras. I mean, Jean yeah. Godel's Arras. The people watching this play might be in this tavern right now. I mean, <laughs> um, so the messenger stops by. He has some drinks, you know, um, and he's very clearly in our world, which is interesting because then you say, well, is Arras being compared to the pagans? Um, not exactly. This is actually a really complicated political situation. I'm just going to boil it down and say that Arras at the time, of course, today it's French, <laughs> but at the time it's part of Picardy. Um, and they're under the control of the Count of Flanders, part of the city. Another part of the city is under the control of the bishop who is also under the control of the French king. Right, so the French king to the okay. bishop to part of the city, and then the rest of Arras is under the control of the Count of Flanders. Um, and basically there's a lot of political tension between these two parts of the city. Okay, that makes and sense. essentially what Baudel does throughout this, right, the pagans and the Christians are basically set up as these two parts of the city. Mm -hmm. um, and the tavern, of course, is a shared space. Everyone goes to the tavern, right? Um now, in real life, the Count of Flanders did go off to the Crusades, died. Okay. And the entirety of Arras then became, went under the control of the king. Because what the Count of Flanders had had previously went directly under the control of the king, and the part that the bishop has is still indirectly under the control of the king. So now the king of France gets everything. And Arras, which used to be semi-independent part of Picardy, is now sort of part of what we would say France. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is sort of what Baudel is dealing with. So Arras has a very negative view of the Crusades, for one thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the Christians going off to the Crusades aren't necessarily seen as positive. Um, and the pagans who are trying to fight them aren't necessarily seen as negative. Right. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so after our messenger has a drink, he collects people. Um, sure enough, they fight the Christians. An angel shows up um, and tells the Christians that they're all going to die and they'll be rewarded by going to heaven. Which, as I said, is not necessarily yeah. supposed to seem like a totally positive thing here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the stage directions just say, now the Saracens kill all the Christians. <laughs> okay. Which is Baudel's general, you know. Um, you know, it's a sort of pointless thing. Why are they out there fighting? Anyway, uh, one guy is found still alive afterwards. Um, and he's praying to a statue that the pagans call a horned Muhammad. Hmm. Uh, and the horns refer, of course, to the bishop's mitre. Right, this is this is a statue of Saint Nicholas, and he's got on his okay. bishop's hat, which okay. is quote unquote horned. Right, it's got the two points. All right. So that being said, he also kind of looks demonic from the pagan perspective, you know, with his horns. 
Um, and this is a chance to also remind the audience that they do not like the bishop. Remember the bishop who's under the control of the king and also right. controls part of the Russ? Yeah. In real life, he was not super liked. The bishops. Any of them. Uh, but also this one, specifically, who this is probably kind of about. Um, and in real life, also, he was definitely a usurer. <laughs> <laughs> and all sorts of things. Anyway. Okay. So, um, the one guy who's alive is taken with his wooden statue. You know, it's plain wood. This wooden horn statue he's taken to see the pagan king. And he tells the pagan king that um, this wooden statue might not look like much, but it can protect the king's money. Mm. All by itself. Oh. You know, so, that, so the gold-covered Teravigan, you know, that might look like a nice idol. He's covered in gold, but he can't do much. But this wooden statue will protect the king's money. So the king pops the St. Nicholas statue on his money and has it proclaimed throughout the town that his money isn't being guarded. It's only mm-hmm. being guarded by this horned wooden idol. <laughs> okay. Um, so we go back to the tavern. There's some thieves drinking and gambling in the tavern. They hear this proclamation. They decide to go steal the money, and they do. No problem. Uh, the pagan king is furious, but the survivor is like, just wait a minute, give me one night. I promise St. Nick will come through. So he's given one more night. Uh, St. Nicholas goes to the thieves in a dream. He threatens them. They get so scared, they do return the money. Hmm. Uh, but they don't convert or anything. I mean, they return the money, and then they head off to, like, steal more stuff that won't yell at them, basically. <laughs> sure. The pagan king, the next day, finds that not only has all his money been returned, but it's doubled. Yeah. So he converts to Christianity immediately. Okay. <laughs> and throws the gold-covered idol, Teravigan, basically, like, off the balcony or whatever. Hmm. Right? Okay. Which is exactly what the gold idol had foretold. Um, and then the king also makes all of his allies convert, which they're all willing to accept this one king who's known as the king from beyond the withered tree. Uh, and his domain is so far name. away. Yeah. <laughs> it's a sort of biblical illusion. We'll put it in the notes. But anyway, uh, his domain is so far away that they use millstones as currency. They're just incredibly poor. They don't have anything you know, millstones as currency. Yeah. And he doesn't want to convert. Money doesn't mean anything to him. He's forced to convert. <laughs> um, and so he finally says to the pagan king, right? He says, well, because everyone else is converting and forcing me to, on pain of death, I'm going to say that I converted, but only my words will belong, you know, to St. Nicholas and Christianity. My faith will still belong to Muhammad. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um... Basically, Bodell has set up this sort of brilliant satire in which we have the sort of gold-covered idol who is true. His prophecies are true. He knows what's going on. But he's thrown over because even though he's covered in gold, he obviously can't create money. St. Nicholas looks like this poor wooden statue. But he's a usurer, essentially. He can double your money if you believe in him. Hmm. So immediately, right, everyone's ready to convert to Christianity for the money. (laughs) <laughs> not for the belief, but for the money. The one guy who remains remains true to his beliefs, it's because he doesn't need the money. I mean, money doesn't mean anything sort of in his economy. Yeah. And he clearly sees the hypocrisy of it, right? Which we are also supposed to see the hypocrisy of it and of St. Yeah. Nicholas, right? As basically a usurer bribing people to convert to Christianity. Um, and a reminder that in Arras itself, I mean, the bishop, this is a sort of commentary on the bishop, uh, but also on Arras, right? On what happened because of the Crusades, that they sort of lost their freedom. You know, anyway, various things. Um, but it's this sort of brilliant, brilliant commentary on 
Santa, essentially. I mean, on the way that money, gifts have become the currency of Christmas. I mean, Christmas runs our economy. And mm-hmm. this year, if people don't go places and give presents, I mean, who knows, right? The economy has already lost all of its other big days, yeah. right? Um, what you, Whatever it is, you know, all the traveling in the summer, uh, Memorial Day, Labor Day. But of course, the real shopping season when everything, you know, anyone who's going to make money needs to make their quotas is Christmas. Yeah, I mean, right? who's going to want to stand in line for Black Friday? Right. It's, the idea of being in a crowd like that is terrifying. Yeah. I mean. But anyway, this is a reminder. So it's Bodell essentially satirizing this idea of St. Nicholas mm-hmm. even before he was Santa Claus, hmm. right? Before he's officially connected to Christmas, before he's connected to sort of the gift giving of children, mm-hmm. This is sort of how he was already seen, was very much as a kind of mercenary saint. Um, It's a great play. I love it. I love talking about it. Um, It's a really interesting portrayal of all sorts of things, um, including sort of whiteness and, you know, Santa. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so that's that is my favorite sort of commentary on Santa. Um, We don't have a lot of time left for the tree, but maybe we could fit it in. Yeah. There's in some ways not a ton to say, right? But trees, Christmas trees, are basically from early modern Germany, the 1500s, Mm -hmm. right? That's when they start. Um, And then, of course, they sort of go to England because Germans in England, like the royal family, Victorian, etc. Yes. Prince Albert, right? Yep. Was uh, German, and he brought it over. He did. And many other things, yeah. So, um, (laughs) anyway, so, right, we get the the trees. that being said, now is when we mention that, of course, evergreen trees have held great symbolism in the winter, obviously, because it's the hope of that coming spring and fertility. Yeah. Um, so Saturnalia, back to Saturnalia, right? The sort of winter carnival festival of Rome. Um, evergreen boughs were absolutely used as decoration for this exact reason, because, you know, you didn't necessarily decorate them, <laughs> but they were important to the celebration, because of that exact idea, right? The idea of evergreen in midwinter is important. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also important to mention things like the world trees, right? Yes. Drassel. Um, trees absolutely do have a very large importance, not just in Germanic culture, mm-hmm. although that is, of course, an example. Um, but we have the tree you know, of trees life are, in Judaism. Yes. yes. Um, and so, of course, the tree of life in the garden. Um, parallel the tree of knowledge of good and evil Mm -hmm. which of course Adam and Eve eat they get tossed out of the garden Um, the legend that we mentioned at the very beginning that now we'll come back around to um, when Adam dies his son Seth the one that you may not have heard of the one who (laughs) a later son yes the one who's not Cain or Abel Um, so Seth goes back to the garden And the angel gives him seeds, or possibly an apple, but anyway, seeds from the tree of knowledge. A pomegranate. A pomegranate. Potentially, yeah. (laughs) Um, And so he takes these and he plants them in Adam's grave, and we'll post some of the great pictures that there are of the tree growing straight out of Adam's skull, basically. Um, And the legend has it, this is, of course, medieval legend of the cross, that eventually this tree is cut down and the wood is used to make the cross. Mm-hmm. 
And when Christ is crucified on the cross, of course, then it once again becomes the tree of life. Right. So now the tree that was the tree of knowledge of good and evil that gets kicked out of the garden has itself become the tree of life. Right. An everlasting life, because that is how you get back into heaven. <laughs> yeah. And so there are great images, not just of the tree growing out of Adam, but then of Christ, like hanging in the branches like an apple. Um, or so the, the full like circle parallel. Odin sacrificing himself on Yggdrasil. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Right. Okay. Um, Yes, things come around is the point, yeah. Yes. Um, and trees, right? So that sense of the tree, of the cross as a tree. Yes, of course, you dressel the symbols of the world tree. Um, and the idea of the importance of evergreen trees in winter, right? So a lot of these things clearly sort of coalesced syncretism, mm -hmm. right? Um, and ultimately what we get in early modern Germanys is the decorating of evergreen trees mm -hmm. in the winter, and that will ultimately become our Christmas tree. So there are a lot of things that go into it. There's no specific origin. There's no specific pagan origin, right? But there are a lot of places both within Christianity and outside of it where some of these things clearly have come together. Yeah. And so that's why, that is why, to come full circle, a Christmas tree ultimately is a Christmas tree. Like that is ultimately where it comes from. Now, if you use, like, evergreen boughs or holly potentially to decorate your house, that could potentially be pagan, right? Yeah. Saturnalia. You're using an evergreen plant as decoration. <laughs> but if you decorate a fir tree, that is a Christmas tree. Yeah. Right. Uh, if you take something different, you know, like an oak, an evergreen oak or something, you drassel, whatever, if you, you know, like, you know, then sure, maybe that's different. But that's also, that's syncretism, because they didn't actually decorate the tree. Right. Right. You have things like the Yule log, but of course you burn that, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I mean, trees are important, and they're very important to winter, and evergreen trees are incredibly important, because they give you that sense you'll last through the winter. Um, and they have been part of celebrations for a long time. But the decorating of the tree ultimately does really land itself in Christianity. Yeah. And specifically in Germany. Yeah. This is interesting. Um, <laughs> honestly, so there's a scene in The Lion in Winter, um, just Ooh, yes. so we can talk about Peter O'Toole again, which obviously yep. it's, if you haven't seen it, it's set during the reign of Henry II. And I knew yeah. there's a scene where everybody is sort of gathered around the Christmas tree and Henry picks up a present and he's like, oh, you've bought me my tombstone. And I, I knew that the Christmas tree was an anachronism. Yep. But it's kind of interesting that, like, the presents maybe were not. Right. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Oh, no, gift giving is a huge thing around Christmas and has been for a long time. It's, of course, different. Like, obviously... The play is anachronistic in the sense that you assume he's got like a nice wrapped little present, which is yes, not, right. You know, there's there's still a fair number of anachronisms, yes. but um, but no, the idea of gift giving was is definitely of the season. Yes, absolutely. Yes, um, yeah, and you know, but gifts also like food. So if you think of things like oh, like the fruit cake, mm -hmm. which is. Obviously not exactly medieval, <laughs> but does have origins in things that are medieval, mm -hmm. which is why people make so much fun of it. Although it can be truly delicious if you get someone who knows how to make one. Yeah. Right. But the ideal 
of the fruitcake, of course, is that you have to preserve fruits, first of all, right? So it's a, it's a really tough sweet bread that is filled with these preserved fruits and soaked in alcohol. Because mm-hmm. this is what you do around the holidays. I mean, right? Alcohol for both drinking, but also warmth basically, right? Do people um, serve celebration. this lit on fire ever? Like they do with figgy oh, yeah, yeah. pudding? I mean, you can. Yeah. You know, I mean, traditionally you wouldn't necessarily if you got a good one. Right. It is something people do occasionally if, you know. But theoretically it, it wouldn't burn. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are versions of things that do. Yeah, the figgy pudding. Um, but that's sort of the idea, right? And the, the preserved fruits, because you, you know, it's winter. That's mm-hmm. what you got now. Yeah, so this... And of course, alcohol also preserves things, right? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so that idea of... Um, you know, these are things that do have a very long history. <laughs> and like I said, the, yeah. it's not technically a medieval recipe, of course, the modern... Even though people look at it that way. Um, but it is... I mean, there are things that go back that far. We'll do a food episode at some point. Yeah. Um but anyway, but yeah, I mean, these sorts of traditions that really, um... Deep roots. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, um... We'll let everybody who's been avoiding their families and hiding in the back room listening to this episode. Sorry, guys. You gotta go back and make nice with Aunt Ruth or whoever. But we hope you have a good Christmas anyway and that you don't light anything on fire that isn't meant to be lit on fire. And everybody have a happy new year and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.